HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My Family Recipe is a new podcast from Food52 and Heritage Radio Network, bringing you cherished heirloom recipes and the stories behind them. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Hello to everyone. I'm Louisa Kasdan, your host for Let's Talk About Food, a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community. And community is what we crave. Today, our guest is Hannah Howard. Hannah is a young writer who's recently published two memoirs. The first one is called Feast, True Love in and Out of the Kitchen. The second one, just out in September, is called Plenty, a memoir of food and family. I've read both of them, and I really love them. She's a wonderful, gifted storyteller, and I think the best thing to do is to start off with Hannah reading an excerpt from her first book, Feast. The cheese was perfect. It oozed out of its snow-white skin leaving a puddle on the cutting board. It tasted of sweet milk and buttered mushrooms and joy. It was 2006, the summer after my freshman year of college. I had a new internship at the Artisanal Premium Cheese Center, which was a total dream job. I spent my mornings in the cheese caves, glorified refrigerators with fancy technology to control humidity. Each cave was packed with rows and rows of wooden shelves filled with blues, bloomies, and washed rinds, which I spritzed with a spray bottle of cider or wine. I wore two sweaters in July. I turned and flipped the wheels for hours, rubbed their ruddy bellies with a damp rag. After the work, I washed my hands twice, scrubbing carefully. Still, they smelled ripe. In the afternoons, I helped organize the wine and cheese, or whiskey and cheese, or craft beer and cheese for the classes that were hosted at the center's sleek new teaching kitchen. The artisanal premium cheese center was a straight shot west from Penn Station in an inconspicuous office building by the West Side Highway. I'd confirm the lineup of cheeses with the instructors and nestle the white wines into a bucket of ice. I'd edit or sometimes write the notes I planned to hand out and place next to the half glasses of wine I'd pour and the one-ounce slivers of cheese I'd arrange like clock hands on a white plate. A cater waiter would arrive around 4 o'clock to slice baguettes, 
and tie white napkins around water pitchers. I'd help out and make sure everything was in order. I wasn't required to stay for the classes, but usually I did. Access to those tastings was one of the best job perks for a budding food geek like me. I'd sit in the back and scribble notes in my journal. Even though I'd attended Cheese 101 a handful of times by the end of the summer, I'd always leave with a new nugget of knowledge about brie. The creamy, luscious cheeses actually have less fat than their hard counterparts because they have more water weight. Or a new cheese discovery. Soft, ripened, stracchino-style water buffalo's milk cheese is ridiculous, and even more so with a glass of something bone-dry and bubbly. I waxed poetic about real-deal cave-age Gruyere in Stitchelton, a raw milk take on the iconic English Stilton, but I also spent no small amount of time writing obsessive logs of what I had eaten that day in calories and points. Someone had forwarded me an article about the dangers of carbs, so I added those to the ever-growing list of foods I monitored and feared. I eyed the baskets of fresh baguettes with longing and suspicion. I hadn't yet received my anorexia diagnosis. That would come a few short months later, but I did try to save whatever sad allotment of calories I allowed myself for cheese. That afternoon, I stared at the plate in front of me. I knew we were supposed to cut and serve the cheeses in one-ounce portions, but didn't that piece of camembert look a little big? I was falling in love with the little buttons of fresh chevre, the craggy rinded tomes, the gigantic alpine wheels that we took cylindrical tastes from with a sonde, a cheese plug, to gauge their ripeness and deliciousness. Officially, I was working toward a degree in anthropology and creative writing, but the cheese world was another kind of school. Every day, I learned something new. I was a young woman starting to forge a career in food, though I didn't know it yet. I was just following my passions, seeking acceptance and soaking up knowledge in a world where producers spent decades perfecting their craft, where chefs worked night after night on improving a dish, on creating culinary excitement. I had always loved food. At home, the kitchen seemed to be the heart of our family. Out in the world, sharing food meant connection. It is an integral part of our lives that offers sustenance and is often an elemental part of our identity. Culture, history, comfort, joy, pride, fear, anxiety, love. For me, it was a beautiful obsession, complicated by a darker compulsion. I wanted to taste everything and learn everything about what I was tasting, the person who made that cheese, their traditions, their dreams. I was also afraid of my own appetite and learned to loathe my body in a world that taught me that there was only one punishingly narrow way for a young woman to look. My love for food was profound and profoundly complicated. One late morning, my boss summoned me out of the caves and into the office. A French cheesemaker with a tiny goatee was visiting from Alsace. He unpacked a lineup of cheeses from a rolling suitcase, poured bubbly into plastic cups, and cut hunks from his beauties. My coworkers gathered around to try his wares. Half my brain was trying to follow his heavily accented lecture on cow breeds and importing regulations. The other half, later I would recognize this as my eating disordered brain, cruel, small-minded, tiresome, and relentless, said, if you eat this cheese, you cannot eat dinner. It said, if you eat this cheese and dinner, you pig, you cannot eat anything tomorrow. I ate the cheese. Later, the cheesemaker left his perfect wares in our little office kitchen. Everyone went back to work. I put my second sweater back on to counteract the cold that permeated the cheese caves and tied my apron around my waist. 
But my stomach was grumbling, and I couldn't stop thinking about that double creme with the subtle, earthy funk. I took off my apron. I didn't wash my hands. I snuck back to the little kitchen and sliced off a sliver. Just a sliver. It tasted obscenely good. My body vibrated with wanting. Another sliver. And another. Soon the whole wheel was gone, and then the next one, leaving only a gloppy smudge on the cutting board and a sinking feeling in my stomach. Dairy and shame. Seems like a good good ending. How did you come to write it, feel safe to write it, be so completely candid about all of the people in your life, and write it so well? Well, thank you, first of all. I've always loved to write. I've always felt inspired to kind of take the personal and even the really challenging parts of my life and turn it into a story and share it with people. I'm not sure why. <laughs> I, When I was in middle school, I, I wrote a zine about the adventures that my friends were up to and had it printed in the copy shop. And I guess this was kind of my, jokingly, my husband calls this the grown-up version of that. But in all seriousness, I have always loved to read as well and felt that memoir was a really special way of connecting on the page with a reader and a writer. If I could turn some of the really difficult experiences in my life, in the case of Feast, my first book, My Eating Disorder, and use it to connect with people and maybe make someone else feel less alone, it felt worth it. It felt like a good, important thing to do and something I definitely felt compelled to do. I've had the joy of reading your book, but other people haven't. So tell us a little bit, starting with Feast, if I were to ask you to, to tell me the back cover story. What someone is going to sort of be excited to read your story, which manages to be both a love and a difficult relationship with food all the way through. But a lot of the love does come through. Um, Feast is my story of working my way through restaurants and falling in love with food and at the same time struggling with and then ultimately beginning to recover from an eating disorder. Food always took up a lot of space in my head and my heart and my imagination and part of that was really positive. It was joyful. My mom was a great cook, and I have these amazing memories on Saturdays when I was a kid growing up in Baltimore. She used to take me on these shopping adventures, and we'd stop at the farmer's market, and we'd stop at Mastalone's and watch Mrs. Mastalone knead fresh curds into mozzarella. And if I was lucky, I'd get a taste, and we'd go to the Near East Bakery and taste halva and olives and just this joy that food, you know, and wherever the kitchen was, that was kind of the heart of the life of the party. But at the same time, from a very young age, tension for me with food started with my body and being the tallest one in the class always and the, the first girl to need a bra and just always felt like there was something kind of wrong with me and I was too much and too big and making that connection really early with food and being on a diet and off a diet. And this struggle got bigger and bigger and took up more and more room in my life and became an obsession. And by the time I was a freshman in college, I had an anorexia diagnosis. 
which was kind of, at that point, I was really, really restricting my food. And I, I knew too that that was only a piece of the of the story. That wasn't the full story. I mean, it's a really tough thing having an eating disorder. I wouldn't wish it on anyone. And really trying to control my food and my body without much success um, before I realized that it was just way too painful of a way to live. The first time shared something that had been so shameful and secretive and lonely and asked for help. And I really got a lot of wonderful help. I read the story of your willing yourself not to eat an extra olive um, in all of these incredible restaurants and a restaurant actually that was named after an olive. And I thought about how it must have been for you to be surrounded by all this, the incredible discipline and I don't want to say self-hate. You had to see yourself as needing to be thin so much more than you wanted to be happy. We live in a world that teaches us that thinness is often equated to goodness, you know? And so I thought that, right, I thought I had to be thin to be okay in the world. And turns out it's not necessarily quite that simple. The first book kind of lays out who is Hannah? Who is this person, this brilliant girl very driven, very focused, worked energetically and intellectually to get to Columbia, to be this incredibly smart child, but you were still very much a, let me put it in a way that sounds really a little indelicate, a round peg in a square hole. You didn't want to live in the dorms when you got there. You wanted to have this whole second life with all these food people. You had this incredibly separate life from most college students, and you kind of live two parallel lives. And I'm someone who comes out of the restaurant business and I understand how all-consuming that is. You were in school. And that's kind of mind-blowing to me, how you managed to do that and also basically live on about nine and a half calories a day. So (laughs) I honestly look back at those college years and don't know how I managed to survive. I remember like a day going to class and then at night working in a restaurant And then studying for some exams and just no sleep happening. I don't, I I mean, I'm today someone who really, really needs my sleep. I feel like almost the hardest part of living with this eating disorder was pretending that everything was okay on the outside while really suffering in, you know, inside. So it was a lot. I do feel like Feast uh, is, is a coming of age story and I do talk about feeling kind of like an outsider always, like I didn't quite belong. I feel like I found my people a little bit in the restaurant industry. I think a lot of restaurant people are round pegs and square holes or the other way around. And I met people that I just loved and were quirky and brilliant and fantastic. It was an amazing time and a a challenging time for sure. One of the parts of the book and part of the second book, too, that just sings for me is the way you write about cheese. (laughs) I've read a lot of food writing and I've written a lot of food writing, but when you write about cheese, you are in another sphere. Yes. So at this first restaurant job I had at Pichonlin, named after the olive, um, this very old school French Michelin-starred restaurant on the Upper West Side of New York City. There was an amazing cheese cart. And I've always really liked cheese. I mean, who doesn't like cheese? But this cheese cart really uh, captured my heart. It was 
just full of these incredible cheeses that I had no idea existed. And if I was lucky, I could hang around nearby while the the cheese guy who kind of took me under his wing and became a mentor was setting up and I might get a taste of something. And it really, it really was a light bulb moment for me, just this sort of diversity and this world of amazing cheese. And 15 years later, maybe I'm still, you know, the, the love and the passion for cheese hasn't worn off. It still excites me. And I think it's so cool that from just a handful of ingredients, cheeses like most all milk with a little bit of salt and rennet and culture. You get everything from a creamy, triple cream, luscious ooey cheese to like a super aged Gouda. This whole wide world from just mostly milk. And it's just been such an adventure to get to go on these cheese journeys and meet these cheese people and really get nerdy in the world of cheese. I mean, cheese nerds and wine nerds are in a special class, I think. We'll be back with our favorite cheese nerd, Hannah Howard, in a minute, and she'll tell us how writing her first memoir changed her life. Good food is worth a thousand words. This is Arthi Menon, and I'm delighted to share a new podcast with you. My Family Recipe, from Food 52 and Heritage Radio Network. Adapted from Food 52's much-loved column of the same name, the My Family Recipe podcast will bring its pages to life. Each episode of My Family Recipe brings you a cherished heirloom recipe and the story behind it, from voices across the world of food. We'd open these tubs of dough and they would exhaust these incredible yeasty fumes and it just smelled like nothing else. It was so intoxicating. I'll interview writers and chefs, parents and children about what's passed down along with the foods that we know and love. Chinese people aren't like born with a download on how to like velvet chicken. You know, like that's not something that just like comes to you. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back with Hannah Howard. So you write this whole wonderful book. You come to the end of it. You publish your first memoir. And how does that change your life? I think the book coming out changed my life both more and less than I expected it to. I've always loved books and reading and writing. And so it was a big dream of mine realized. There's something kind of anticlimactic about that in a way, like this thing I've always wanted to do my whole life. Okay, I did it. And then I still wake up in the morning and everything kind of feels the same. (laughs) Um, But on the other hand, I don't mean to diminish the experience because for me, the most powerful thing was getting correspondence or reviews or, or letters or emails from people who really said the book touched them. And that felt like oh, that's the whole point. I was really scared to share some of these things that had been really deep, dark secrets for me and put them out there. And whoever, you know, whoever wants to read it, they can read it. And it was pretty terrifying. And so it was also this huge relief that 
I didn't get struck by lightning. And instead, I was met with a lot of warmth and understanding and appreciation that feels to this day really meaningful to me. When you got ready to write the second book, at first I thought it was going to be just a series. The second book is called Plenty, and there is plenty to love in plenty. Different wonderful uh, profiles of people in the food world, unexpected people in the food world. And it's also interlaced in a temporal way with your own personal story, which ends at the, I won't give it away. How did you, how did you know where that book was going to go? It took me some time for sure. I went to grad school for creative writing and I wrote my thesis about the unique challenges of second books because your first book, or for me, and I think for many, the first book was kind of marinating in my brain my whole life. It was my my story. And then, then the second book, the big question is, okay, now what? I guess it's that famous sophomore slump. My first idea was really just a series of profiles about amazing women in food. And so there is a component of plenty that's about finding a community of amazing women in the food and hospitality world. But when I started to do a kind of more journalistic, straightforward investigation into these women, there was something that was kind of coming up while writing and brainstorming with my writers group. I really felt connected to this memoir kind of writing and to use my story as a way of connecting with others and telling other people's stories. So I thought, what if I'm the way in to these other people that I want to get close to and learn about and write about? And so there's two parts, right? There's there's my journey of falling in love and starting a family. And then there's these other people's journeys, there's a cheesemonger, there's a barge pilot, there's a caterer, there's a sommelier. Not necessarily, not that the women that I write about aren't super successful, but they're not necessarily the biggest names in the world, but they were people that really spoke to me and inspired me and who I either, who either were my friends and mentors or who I wished were my friends and mentors. I mean, one of the hardest parts of the book to read was a part where you're so incredibly open about this um, incredibly heartbreaking miscarriage that started to unfold during a trip to Europe. Could you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. My husband and new husband at the time and I decided that we wanted to try to have a baby and we got pregnant right away. And then while I was traveling on this beautiful trip, during a wedding, we had this really sudden, heartbreaking, scary miscarriage. A part of me maybe knew that miscarriages were very common, but I didn't expect it to happen to me, maybe um, in a sort of cocky way. I also didn't expect it to be so heartbreaking and devastating. It was one of the hardest experiences that I've been through. And I think much like my eating disorder had been this big secret and I started to heal when I shared about it, I felt sort of similarly. There's a big taboo about talking about pregnancy loss. A lot of people just don't share. And that's, you know, I'm, I'm not judging anyone who chooses not to share, but it felt lonely to have this experience. We hadn't told people about being pregnant. So mm -hmm. it felt 
hard to kind of tell people about losing a pregnancy and getting to share my story and hear other people's stories really helped me move forward. I got the opportunity to write about it. And in doing so, I also realized how many people have been through this and Mm -hmm. how hard it is. I find it fascinating. And I think every woman would say that you never know how many women that you know have miscarriages until you have one. And then suddenly everybody's like, I know. I definitely had that experience. <laughs> I, I, you know, and even at the doctor, she told me, cause I, there's like, d- there's huge numbers of pregnancies end in miscarriage. And she said that, mo- you know, because it's so common, most women who have, she said, if you have two or three kids, you've probably experienced pregnancy loss. And that she like really made, seemed to make an impact. Like, wow, that's, that's a lot of people have two or three kids. So, um, yeah, and and that it felt much better feeling not alone. Feeling alone with things is a really tough way to feel. In addition to the wonderful profile of your now husband, who was so much fun to read about, what stands out? What was what was the most fun um, to write about, to research about? I am incredibly lucky. I had so much fun with this book. Towards the beginning of the book, I go and meet one of these new um, chef friends, Paula at a conference in Oslo. And we kind of explored together. I brought my mom along. She brought her dad along and her uncle. I got to go stay with her in her beautiful house near Milan. (laughs) That was incredible. Um, It was all, you know, when I was very pregnant with my, I'm pregnant again now, but when I was pregnant with my first daughter. Thank you. Simone, who's the last chapter in the book, not to give away too much. I took a a seven-hour journey to the very north of Vermont to meet Allison Hooper, who is the founder of Vermont Creamery, who's one of my cheese heroes. And I just loved getting to spend time with her too. She's someone I've admired as soon as I started to learn about cheese when I was around 18 and getting to like spend time in her home and with her family and with her goats just felt incredibly cool. So much fun to read. You know, when I say so much fun to read, it's interesting that that's my dominant impression because there's a lot in both books. You can understand the human injury and also get a strong sense of your resilience through it. I mean, if you weren't resilient, you couldn't have written these books. That's for sure. So we have plenty and we have feast. Where does a memoirist go next? That's such a good question. Your comment reminds me of, I had a creative writing teacher who said, in some way, if we're reading it, we know the author's okay because they managed to to write it, right? That's such a great question. What's next? I feel like I could keep writing about amazing food forever. <laughs> so there's definitely more food writing in my future, but I have been exploring some other topics I have been obsessed for years with the world of multi-level marketing, which is very not in this usual wheelhouse that I write about, but I've been doing some writing about that. I've been doing some more writing about multi-level marketing and becoming a mom. Yeah. Clearly you have to write about becoming a mom. You have to, because it's going to be wonderful to read. I know that, but not everybody in the world knows what multi-level marketing is. So just a moment on that. Sure. Multi-level marketing is sometimes it's called direct sales, although technically it's a little different, but it sort of started 
with Tupperware parties and that sort of thing. And the idea is that there's multi-levels of sales happening. So you sell one thing to another person and then they sell to the next. And and, um, there's a documentary that came out recently on Amazon Prime called Lula Rich about um, Lula Row, which is like a legging multi-level marketing company that kind of imploded. It's interesting to me because it's a very American sort of thing, even though now these exist around the world and it touches on, they're mostly women involved. So I think it's like, touches on the patriarchy, it touches on money, it touches on culture, it touches on people's sense of belonging. It just feels like this very kind of rich, complicated topic. So we'll see where that goes. My cousin Nancy was one of these champion Tupperware salesperson, and it essentially created her whole social circle. I mean, the money was one thing, Tupperware products, which were pretty good, actually. <laughs> I still have my Jello mold. They they don't just exist as a product. They exist as the the way the human interacts with their world and their social circle. It becomes a vehicle for creating community in a, at a time in people's lives when sometimes it's hard to. So I, I understand why you're interested in that. That's exactly right. And I think I was initially interested because various people from my life, a former coworker, a former classmate, who I almost didn't expect to be involved in these kinds of ventures were involved. And it made me kind of wonder why. And I think you got to what I've been getting to as I've been talking to these people, that that sense of connection and being part of something is really meaningful to people and oftentimes missing from people's lives elsewhere. You will, of course, you will have to write about being a mother because... (laughs) I can't imagine that you won't. But when you were writing, and I always think about this for memoirs, if you write too carefully, if you spare the feelings of the people that you're writing about, you don't do the book justice, but then you have to live with the aftermath of having exposed those relationships to the world. Mm -hmm. Have you had any difficulty with that? I've had a lot of difficulty with that. I feel like it's such... It's one thing when you're writing about yourself, right? Because I can share whatever I feel comfortable with and not share what I don't. I do feel like I am vulnerable on the page, but I can choose exactly how vulnerable I want to be. And when I'm writing about other people, from these women I talked about to my husband, to my mom is in the book as well. Yep. It does feel like a huge act of trust for these people to entrust me with their own personal stories and challenges when they don't have that control that I do as the writer about how it's going to end up. It would be boring, right, to just read like a sunny kind of airbrushed version. I I wanted to get into some of the things that were a little bit darker, a little bit harder. I guess my, my big guiding principle was to try to be both honest and kind. I did get everyone's blessing who I wrote about. So I made some edits and it's interesting at almost every turn, like the things that people ask for me to change are not what I expect or people's reactions are not what I expect. So I did make a few edits as I went along because I wanted the women in the book to feel comfortable and excited about what I was writing about them. And I was scared. I was scared that they wouldn't be happy with my portrait of them or I wouldn't do them justice. And so it was such a relief when for the most part, they were really happy. 
I can't wait for your new book. I hope you never stop writing about food. I Whatever else you do that keeps you entertained, I'll be happy about that too. But I loved Feast, which was a wonderful also, um, not exactly Anthony Bourdain-esque, but it was a very interesting and juicy behind the scenes at the restaurant world. And I loved that. And I loved reading plenty because I loved getting to know you and Yes, I knew that it was going to turn out all right because you wouldn't have written the book, but I was there with you being anxious through it. I recommend both of these books. Fun. Fun to talk to you, Hannah. Thank you so much, Louisa. I'm I'm blushing. I, I really appreciate the kind words, and it's such a pleasure to get to chat about the books. Thank you, Hannah. I can't wait to see what's next. Thanks for listening. And thank you to our team, producer Rachel Gottbaum and sound engineer and composer Michael Moss of Soundscape Boston. You can find more of our stories at heritageradionetwork.org or by visiting our website, letstalkaboutfood.com or find them on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's Talk About Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. 